Hi, welcome to Offscript. I'm Zach Lewis. And I'm Dr. Draper. Today on the show, we're going to be taking a look at the Safdie Brothers' new film, Uncut Gems. We're also going to take a look at Greta Gerwig's Little Women. Andy has put together a top 10 list of the decade, and I of haven't the seen it. Of the decade. And I haven't seen it, and I can't wait to hear it. So I'm just as excited as I hope you are. Before we get to all of that, we need to talk about the news, of course. Our first story this week, Timothy Chalamet to play Bob Dylan in biopic from James Mangold. Yes, Bob Dylan, like a Rolling Stone, is returning to the screen and what I'm assuming is going to be a very uh, Rocket Man or Bohemian Rhapsody style flick, right? I, I actually haven't read this story yet. Andy, what do you know about this? <laughs> So uh, this is going to focus on um, Bob Dylan's uh, switch from folk into rock music. Uh, Dylan himself will be part of the uh, production team, uh, or you know, as a producer, which is uh, kind of strange to me to be a part of your own uh, film about yourself. Um, yeah, and it, this is we we don't know much. Uh, obviously, Timothy Ch- Chalamet, who is kind of the golden boy of the moment, uh, deservedly so, will be will be playing him. Um, we don't know much about it other other than it's another in a long list of biopics uh, to come. It's true. Uh, when I was watching the trailer for Little Women, I saw a trailer for an Aretha Franklin biopic starring Jennifer Houston. Uh, I know uh, there's a Michael Jackson one on the way from the people who produced Bohemian Rhapsody. So I guess there's no surprise that this is the next one on the list. Do you think Chalamet is good casting for uh, Mr. Dylan? Uh, yeah, I think he can he can kind of do any, anything, man. He's he's impressive in everything I've ever seen him in. Even something I didn't like, like uh, what is it, Beautiful Boy that we reviewed. Um, he was gr- he was great in that, even though the, you know I didn't particularly care for that film. I I think the challenge is you know how do you do something different because the the kind of staple was Ray, of course, uh, about um. Oh, I can't remember his last name. Uh, Jamie <laughs> Foxx, right? Right. But, well, that's who... Yeah. Right. Uh, anyway, but, you know, that was kind of the good outline of... Here's a talented artist. He struggles with uh, substance abuse. He gets through it, and, you know, he's a, now he's a legend. So that's kind of how all these go. But I think the the difficult part is really coming up with new inventive ways to tell these... Because the story is kind of the same every time. But... You know, now can you do something like Rocket Man or even something like Bohemian Rhapsody where you really change up the format or do something really new and different? You can't just do the kind of behind the music approach anymore. Yeah, and I would hope with Dylan producing, maybe it'll be a little bit more, like it'll cut a little deeper than something like Rhapsody did. We didn't see Rocket Man, um, but I heard that one was at least a little bit, um, a little bit more, more under the skin. Yeah, um, which is what you want to get out of these things. These people are rock stars, right? Like, I, I, I want to see. The, the rock in the rock and roll. Like, I want to see the, the hard living. Um, hopefully this one gets there. I, I Bob Dylan's got some city miles on him. I actually don't know a whole lot about the guy, uh, but I know he looks like he's 109 years old. So, <laughs> for um, sure. For what it's worth, uh, James Mangold's current film, uh, Ford v. Ferrari, is still in some theaters. You can go see that. Timothy Chalamet is in Greta Gerwig's Little Women, which we'll be talking about later. He's also going to be in Denis Villeneuve's Dune, which I'm very excited for. Um, oh man! Oh oh man! Um, <laughs> we got to do a, a most like an, a most anticipated of 2020 at oh some God. point. <laughs> All the lists we're doing lists every so week. Many, yeah, <laughs> the, the show's list. gonna be called Off List for the next <laughs> the next month. Um, mm. So keep keep an eye out for Mr. Chalamet and Mr. Mangold in the future. Uh, our second story: Knives Out sequel in the works. Story to center on Daniel Craig's detective character Benoit Blanc. Uh, I 
was very surprised to read this. Uh, first reaction to this. Uh, what, what do you think of this? I'm not surprised because the film is done exceedingly well financially. And of course, anytime any film does great money, uh, sequels not far behind. And some people had kind of rumored this of that, oh, you know, it'd be great to see more of, you know, Monsieur Benoit Blanc, because uh, he's such a, an incredible <laughs> character that people want to see more of him. And let's see him uh, kind of be the 21st century uh, Hercule Poirot. I think I got it right. Yeah. <laughs> um, the, from the det- lead detective from the Agatha Christie novels. So have him be a modern version of that and have him do other mysteries, have him be a recurring uh, character. I guess Ryan Johnson is obviously a fan of whodunits, like clearly, uh, and and I think part of the fun of the whodunits is is making like a character or a series, right? Making more than one. So, I'm based on what I saw in the in the last film. I guess ideologically, I'm not surprised he wants to make another one. I, I guess I'm surprised to see him so quick to jump on a sequel in the age of cash grab sequels, right? But according to this, uh, Daniel Craig really wants to do it. He had a lot of fun playing <laughs> Benoit sure. Blanc. I'm sure. Um, well, and I think what would be interesting is, you know, Knives Out is not just a good whodunit. It, it has a deeper level of, you know, it deals with wealth and family and immigration and inequality. Like there's some real meaty themes behind the movie. And so th- that's what I would be looking forward to in whatever he does next. Because, you know, there's only so many ways to do the whodunit, but you can make the film about any number of subjects. I'm excited about this ultimately because I did like Knives Out, and I love a good whodunit. Um, they are making more Agatha Christie whodunits, it's worth mentioning. Uh, the last one they did was Murder on the Orient Express with Kenneth, Bra- Kenneth Branagh as uh, Hercule Poirot. They're doing another one. I, I forget uh, the name De- of it. Death on the Nile. Death on the Nile, also starring him. So that's turning into a little bit of a whodunit series. Knives Out is turning into something. If you love whodunits... Whodunit renaissance. Good news. Yeah, the, the whodunit renaissance <laughs> is here. So strap in, folks, and, and we're going to take you for a ride. And our last story of the week, the 77th Golden Globe Awards have happened, and we're going to talk about some winners and some snubs, <laughs> because obviously the Golden Globes are just as important as the Oscars. Andy... This is your yearly opportunity to remind everybody the Golden Globes <laughs> are, um, are are total trash. So, yeah. and, and this is this is why, if you want to, so the, the Golden Globes are compi- comprised of the Hollywood Foreign Press, which are L.A. journalists who write for foreign publications. And th- this is less than a hundred people. I think it's about eighty-five journalists. That's a very small pool. The Oscars, on the other hand, I think are several thousand members. I think six thousand members, and that includes actors, producers, directors, um, a much wider kind of a pool of people so and 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 the golden globes is also trying to be the oscars or trying to predict the oscars or you know there's a lot of it's important for people to know for any um awards uh oscars emmys grammys whatever there's a lot of political motivations behind the scenes and so just keep that that in mind a lot of that was addressed of course by our fifth time host ricky gervais (laughs) headlines about him Uh, a spicy uh, monologue, I think. Uh, any, any thoughts on that? I didn't really watch it, to be honest. I, I was torn between whether or not Ricky Gervais's uh, biting political monologue this year was either uh, a horrendous accident or brilliant marketing. Um, I'm a little jaded, and I'm starting to think it was just brilliant marketing, but I, 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 what do you think? Yeah, I, I think that's exactly what it is. It's brilliant marketing. He, uh, I mean, because he doesn't hold any punches, and it's, I mean, it gets every gets shared everywhere the next day. You know, it, it's it's it gets put everywhere. Right. Um, 
so yeah, I think it's, it's probably just marketing. Yeah, anyways. <laughs> anyways, yes. Yeah, let's move, move into these categories. Um, so we'll start with uh, Best Motion Picture, went to 1917, big surprise. And this was a, a packed, uh, a stacked field, uh, beat out The Irishman, Joker, Marriage Story, and The Two Popes. Three of those are Netflix films. Um, so it was interesting to see 1917 uh, Oh my come God, out. you're right, yeah. Um, and also th- they split into two categories. So musical or comedy went to Once Upon a Time in Hollywood, which beat out Dolomite is My Name, Jojo Rabbit, Knives Out, and Rocket Man. Uh, Zach, you want to take any comments on those or you want to move ahead? A, a, a brief comment and then I'll move ahead. Yeah, a little disappointed that Parasite wasn't in drama or The Lighthouse, um, which seems strange to me. Those are both tremendous films. Uh, I guess I can understand Once Upon a Time in Hollywood being in comedy, but it's also a little bit of a stretch. Um, but I've always had problems with the musical or comedy category. Uh, how, how about you? Any immediate hot takes on this? Um, like I said, I, I'm. Some people are saying that Netflix is getting snubbed because they're not. You know, a bunch of their stuff is kind of getting ignored. Which last year was the opposite. So it's <laughs> it's just interesting. Uh, in the best performance in a motion picture drama categories, our best actor went to Joaquin Phoenix as Arthur Fleck in Joker, which was a not necessarily a surprise, but personally, I was a little surprised to see him on there. Not surprised to see him nominated, but a big win. Uh, also, actress went to Renee Zellweger in Judy as Judy Garland, which was also big. I, I wanted to see that one this year. I didn't. I think it's on Netflix, I want to say. Yeah, I think, I think um, it is. And again, Netflix made a couple of appearances here. Uh, best performance in a motion picture, musical, or comedy went to Taron Egerton as Rocket Man. Sorry, as Elton John in <laughs> Rocket Man. Yeah, um, disappointingly beating out Daniel Craig as Benoit Blanc and Knives Out. But uh, actress went to Aquafina in The Farewell as Billy Wang, which was tremendous because she's great in that movie. Yeah. Um, <laughs> solid wins all around, I think. Yeah, I was really happy to see Aquafina win. I mean, to think that she went from like, she was basically a YouTube uh, star who was kind of a parody of a rapper and now she's doing serious film and winning awards. Um, and again, <laughs> once again, uh, the Netflix crowd losing out uh, marriage story and Scarlett Johansson. Uh, so again, there's more talk about that. I, Adam driver would have kind of been the runner up, I think to beat uh walking Phoenix. Right. Adam driver did not eat, lose like a hundred pounds to play his role though. He would kind of just, he's a little bit just Adam driver in that movie and that's okay. Um, I still think he's great though. So, you know, I, I'm biased. I'm not afraid to say it. I love Adam driver. He's the best. <laughs> it's, it's right. Uh, what do you want to tackle next year? Uh, let's go ahead and move on to uh, Best Supporting Performance in, in Motion Picture. Uh, best Supporting Actor went to Brad Pitt for Cliff Booth in What's Upon a Time in Hollywood, uh, beating out Tom Hanks, Anthony Hopkins, Al Pacino, and Joe Pesci. Man, that is, a, that is quite the field. Ooh, yeah. Um, and then uh, Best Supporting Actress went to Laura Dern for Marriage Story. So see, Netflix did get one there. Uh, <laughs> Laura Dern, we're also going to be talking about her in our review of Little Women a little bit later in the show. Um and that and she beat out Kathy Bates, Annette Benning, Jennifer Lopez, and Margot Robbie. I'm glad to see Marriage Story get some play. Uh, Laura Dern is great in it. She's also great in Little Women, and I'm surprised she wasn't nominated for both roles, honestly. Um, but there's a lot of there's a lot of, of star power in Little Women, to be fair. So if she's going to be nominated for one, I think this is a good pick. Uh, best director and best screenplay. You mind if I take this? Go ahead. Best director went to Sam Mendes for 1917. Won best picture, drama, and best director 1917 at the 77th Golden Globes. He beat out Bong Joon Ho for Parasite, uh, Todd Phillips for Joe. 
Joker, Martin Scorsese is the Irishman, and Tarantino for Once Upon a Time in Hollywood, something I'm sure Tarantino was upset about until he won Best Screenplay for Once Upon a Time in Hollywood, beating out Marriage Story, Parasite, The Two Popes, and The Irishman. So Tarantino doesn't quite get Best Director. He does get Best Screenplay, though, and that's worth something. And he also scooped up, you know, Best Musical or Comedy. So, hey, that's good. But I'm disappointed that Bong Joon-ho didn't take it for Parasite. Surprised to see... Sam Mendes scooping it for 1917, but it is it is an incredible film. Yeah, and and again another stacked field: uh, Scorsese, Tarantino, and Bong Joon Ho, and Todd Phillips. It did great as the Joker as well. And the interesting thing about best screenplay is they don't divide it between adapted and original screenplay like they do in the Oscars. It's just one category. Mm. Uh, moving on to best original score, best and best original song. Uh, best original score went to Joker uh, to Hildor. Guana Tidor. This is a really hard name that we never get right. <laughs> it's, it's a mess. But this was one of my favorite scores of the year. I've listened to it on loop on repeat while playing Rocket League. I've, seen, <laughs> on, I've seen it on TikTok so many times. Yeah. Um, yeah. Great, uh, great score beat out Alexander's Death Plot for Little Women, Randy Newman for Marriage Story, which I I can't remember the score for Marriage Story at all. Thomas Newman no. for ni- 1917, which was very good, and Daniel Pemberton for Motherless Brooklyn, which we didn't see. Best original song went to, then this was a bit of a surprise, uh, I'm Gonna Love Me Again, uh, which was an original song by or for the Elton John film Rocket Man. And this beat out uh, an original song from Beautiful Ghost from Cats, Into the Unknown from Frozen 2. That's the big, uh, that's, that's the surprise. big surprise, yeah, because that's that is a banger, as the kids say. <laughs> uh, <laughs> it slaps, right? Yeah, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and that also beat out Spirit for a new song for The Lion King, and then Stand Up from uh, Harriet. I'm definitely surprised to see Frozen 2 get a bit of a snub on Best Original Song. Uh, also, surprised to see in Best Animated Feature Film, Frozen 2 did not win. Yeah, uh, given miss- the cold shoulder, if you will. Oh, <laughs> oh God. Why did I laugh at that? Uh, the winner of Best Animated Feature Film at this year's Golden Globes was Missing Link, the Leica film, which I put on my yes. honorable mentions uh, this year. I can't believe it. Uh, this movie beat out Frozen 2, How to Train Your Dragon, The Hidden World, The Lion King, and Toy Story 4. It beat three Disney films. That is insanity to me. Uh, what a snub. I hope Disney's furious. I'm sure they're going to win an Oscar anyway, but I'm so glad to see Leica getting some mentions man i love that's, stop motion i love that's all probably of the, the uh yeah that's probably the smallest film in that category yeah easily uh beating dreamworks and disney uh i, I couldn't believe it I, I need to go back and watch the acceptance speech for <laughs> missing link just to see how stunned uh the owners of leica are and lastly uh best foreign language film goes to parasite from south korea this beats out the farewell Les Miserables, Pain and Glory, and Portrait of a Lady on Fire. All I hear, tremendous films. I've only seen two of them, but man, Parasite is awesome. It's exactly what you predicted, Andy. It's not going to win Best Picture, but it will win Best Foreign Language. Mm-hmm. I, I guess that's that's acknowledgement in some fashion. Uh, what do you think? Yeah, yeah, no surprise here. There's been so much buzz, and it's such a great movie. So the weird thing about The Farewell, so The Farewell is not nominated, will not be nominated for the Oscars for foreign language film because it's made here. So it's it, it's an American film, but it is in primarily in Chinese. Mm. Uh, so that's kind of interesting. And I've heard a lot about Pain and Glory, uh, which is a film from Spain with Antonio Banderas, which I've heard really good things about that, but I have not seen that either. 
Yeah, it's weird to hear good things about an Antonio Banderas film. You know what I mean? <laughs> uh, fortunately, Wikipedia, who we're reading off of, uh, puts together some multiple nominations lists and films with multiple wins. It's worth mentioning Marriage Story received six nominations. The Irishman received five. Those are two Netflix films with the most nominations on the board. Um, unfortunately, Irishman didn't win anything. Which Oof. is kind of nuts for five nominations. And Marriage Story won one for Laura Dern, which, hey, I'll take it. But the Golden Globes are a sham anyway, right? <laughs> they're sham. Who, they're, what do they, they know? They're at least getting better. I, I think that they got to fix that musical or comedy uh, category. But uh, I think they, they've the people that have won definitely deserve to win. Sure. Uh, Once Upon a Time in Hollywood won three awards. 1917, Joker, and Rocketman all won two uh overall 77th golden globes what do you think a, a hack a hack job is that what we're looking at here or maybe <laughs> maybe some truth to this um like i said so the oscars nominations get announced monday uh so it's not going to be long till we'll see how these compare and match up and we know that the golden globes desperately want to be respected more and taken more seriously um so we'll see how how closely they line up Yes, we will. Uh, and with that, we have talked about the Golden Globes plenty for 2020. We should move on to our first film of the episode. I'm going to be taking the summary on this one, so excuse my stumbles. I did just see this last night. I'm still kind of working it over. The movie is Uncut Gems. I made a crazy risk to gamble. And it's about to pay off. Uncut Gems is the story of Adam Sandler's Howard Ratner, a charismatic New York City jeweler who's always looking to make the next big score. He makes a series of high-stake bets that involve the Celtics' Kevin Garnett uh, that could lead to the windfall of a lifetime and stacking bet on top of bet and, and risky move on top of risky move. He performs a precarious high-wire act and has to balance business and family and 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 good guys and bad guys on all sides in his relentless pursuit of 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 what is supposed to be the ultimate win uh this movie is two hours and 15 minutes and my god does it feel like it andy what did you think of uncut gems uh so i really like this so i went i went and saw it on on christmas day uh actually really busy uh theater um, and man, this might be one of the most stressful movies I've ever seen. And this is, it's gotten a, a strangely divisive reaction, because, mostly because I think people have been confused about what they were seeing. Like there were people who went in thinking it was, oh, Adam Sandler's in it. It must be a normal Adam Sandler movie, which it, it's, you know, it's a Safdie Brothers film <laughs> featuring Adam Sandler. And, you know, it's a completely different type of film and it's intense and it's, you know, it's kind of this seedy underworld of diamond dealing and, uh, you know, sports betting. And, you know, there were these reports coming out of people going and doing reviews that were like, there was so much swearing. There was some unpleasant violence. Like, what did you think you were going to see? Um, but the movie is incredibly stressful. Like, it really puts you in these positions where, and this has been another complaint, but I think it's a good thing where people, they're like, the movie gave me so much anxiety because you'll have these scenes where uh, 10 things are going on. Like, Howard's on the phone trying to, you know, make one deal, and then there's people in his store yelling at him, and then there's someone else doing another thing, and he's trying to fix it like he's doing 10 things at once all the time the whole movie is like that it never lets up and you're just so stressed out the whole time and that's what i think it's great like it makes you feel that tension and i, th I think that's a huge win for a film 
I was really fortunate. I went and saw this with a friend of mine, uh, and and we went to we went to a, a little bar afterwards. We saw it last night, so it was, it was a late night. But uh, we were hanging out talking about it, and I said, you know, I really respect what's happening in this movie, but I I'm not sure I enjoyed it. It it oh my god, there's no room to breathe. It is just constant ups and downs and highs and lows and. Everything is closing in the whole movie, and like I had a headache by the, the time I was done watching it. And I, <laughs> it is it is a it is a very well done piece of cinema. It really is like it 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 so well kind of just tightens the screws slowly as you're watching it. But my God, I was so uncomfortable by the end of it. I'm I have a tough time saying I I enjoyed it, but damn, do I respect it. So let's talk <laughs> about uncut gems for sure. I'm real split on how I feel about this movie. Uh, let's first let's get into our performances. I think that's the best place to start. Adam Sandler is our lead as Howard Ratner in a surprisingly dramatic performance from a man I've seen on Netflix far too many times. Uh, yeah, man, it feels so good to see him back in drama again. Yeah, absolutely. He he, you know he, and he's not like he hasn't reinvented himself. He's not playing someone completely different. He's just uh, he. It fits. It fits really well, you know. But he's kind of this seedy guy who. But he's not completely wrong. Like he he makes a lot of really risky bets. He he you know he just kind of goes big or goes home, and he's always going big, and he loses big, but then sometimes he wins big, and so like. But he just he does this thing where he's constantly like, oh, I have this piece of jewelry, this piece of jewelry on loan. Let me go pawn that. All right, so I got some more cash. Let me go place a bet on this cash. And obviously, there's collateral. And, and and half of these things don't belong to him, but it's it's there's all these jewels changing hands and uh, and and he runs his personal life the same way because he he has a family at home. Uh, his wife played by Adina Menzel, which is who plays Elsa, uh, which I thought was really funny. Weird casting, but I'm glad to see her in a movie. Yeah. Uh, um. And then, but he also has a girlfriend on the side uh, played by Julia, newcomer Julia Fox, um, who who is kind of his partner in crime as well and, the, and you know he gets these moments where he's like he's gonna come out on top like he's won the big bet he can pay off all his loan sharks but he doesn't he just goes no i can go even bigger and let me stall these people and then he does the same thing in, in his personal life where he he almost gets things together but then he lets allows them to to fall apart it's very much like the scorpion and the frog kind of mentality yeah and it's it's exhausting like as as somebody who personally like in my life way overthinks big decisions like adam sandler is just making moves so fast without any like just completely throwing caution to the wind with the idea that this gamble will eventually pay off he's got a very clear gambling problem in this movie and it's such a struggle for somebody like me to watch and it might be a struggle for you but it's also such a treat to be able to experience that that thrill and that rush from the safety and comfort of your little theater and your little your little <laughs> movie chair. Um, on top of this, he is very much a, a secular uh, Jew in this film. Uh, he's very Jewish, and and he has a very traditional family. They they talk about Passover, and and there's a lot of scenes with yarmulkes and and foreign language and. That's kind of a running theme in this film that we'll get more into when we talk about it, but it's worth mentioning that I think Sandler's really leaning on kind of where he comes from, what he knows. And it just feels so good to watch Adam Sandler not always just going for a cheap laugh, you know? Right. Just committing to the role, committing to the bit, committing to the drama. Like, it, it's it's worked so well for him in the past, and it feels good to watch him do it again. I want to mention, like, Keith Stanfield is in this film. He's tremendous. Julia Fox is new, and I'm 
excited to see what she's up to next. My favorite performance, arguably, out of the whole thing is Kevin Garnett yes. from the Celtics, <laughs> who is great in this movie. Like, Dave Batista levels good of an athlete, like, transitioning to film. He needs to do more. He's really good. Um, yeah, yeah, re- really, really surprising. And there's we'll get into the plot later. But, yeah, part of what makes Adam Sandler's uh, performance so good is he has to constantly talk his way out of things. And he's just he's a fast talker, and he's like, no, I, okay, I can get your money this, or here's, here's no, I can get this piece of jewelry right now, or let me, if you just give me another 12 hours. He's, like, constantly talking. But, but he's got to do this to, like, 10 people at once. And one of those people is Kevin Garnett, which he has several exchanges and is seen kind of throughout the movie and is, ends up being a real important player in, in all of this. And yeah, it was really surprising. I was like, man, this guy's great. Yeah, he's actually really good. Like, I had heard he was pretty good, but, like, I didn't expect this to be a breakout performance. And this movie juggles uh, a couple of, of kind of fantastic settings. It mostly takes place in New York, mostly in the city. We get a little bit outside the city, a hair of Philadelphia, and a lot of NBA footage of, like, the Celtics playing the Sixers and, and a couple other games that, like... I don't know how the Safdie brothers managed to produce this for what is their second, really first big budget theatrical film. Good Times came out, but that kind of went straight to video. Um, they really managed to pull off something great in the direction of this film. Uh, and, and I think that's worth mentioning. These two are pretty new to, to this stuff. And not only do they have a really fantastic cast for what they were able to work with, but man, the settings of this film just make things flow in a way that feels jagged because it's supposed to be stressful, but ultimately very realistic. It felt very period for a film that I think takes place in 2010. Yeah. Adam Adam Sandler's using a very old iPhone and, and problems are very dated, but appropriate. Um, it was just so charmingly directed for being a movie that's so stressful. Yeah, there's a whole thing about the uh, the NBA playoffs with between the Celtics and the uh, 76ers uh, back, I think, 2012 or around there that they've written around, which is brilliant in itself. And they've also, again, setting it, it's, it's a lot of it takes place within the Diamond District of New York, which is a real place, and also is not is apparently really hard to get into. And they apparently it took them several years to even, like, meet any of these people and it took like adam sandler coming down to like meet people like you basically using his celebrity to like get into these places because they're they're just very closed door there's millions of dollars being exchanged or bought and sold every day and so it's it's a really hard thing for outsiders to get into but they've managed to bring us into that world and also to shows how I mean it's real kind of seedy as as well. Like Adam Sandler owns this small diamond shop, and it's it's a kind of thing where the you know it, it's hard to get in the first door, and then he's got like secure several security doors to even get into the shop, and it's like. It's in New York and it's in the Diamond District, and but man, it just you feel like you got to take a shower after you go to this place. So they've done a really good job creating the setting. Yeah, it's true. There's this constant feeling of like grime, even when you're standing in what's supposed to be a very nice jewelry store, because it takes three doors and four locks to get you in and out of it. And like, there's just this feeling of, I don't know, it's it's hard to nail down. I don't want to say tension because that's there, but there's something else on top of it. It was really present in good times. The Safdie brothers have managed to kind of capture this auteur feeling of, of kind of lowbrow, low fidelity New York life, um, metropolitan life, and people who are down on the bottom who are just fighting to get up top and and ultimately learning a lesson along the way, and our characters in this movie certainly do. I want to talk about just kind of the pacing. 
Because like I said at the open, man, this movie does not give you a whole lot of time to breathe. At, at first, I really felt like it was a lot like Good Times, right? The Robert Pattinson film, which is available on Amazon Prime. If you want to get kind of an idea of what you're getting into, go check that movie out. It's actually really good. Um, I thought this movie was first coming up like the top of a roller coaster. You're going up to the top, and then you're going to have the plunge down, and it's just going to get worse and worse and worse. Not really. It's kind of up and down the whole way. There's definitely a downward slope throughout the whole thing. You're, you're going down, but like, man, <laughs> Adam Sandler has a win and he's about to get out of a situation and then he has a loss and he's right back down and like the guy can't catch a break, but it's completely his own fault. Um, and it makes it really challenging to get behind him as an audience member, but very fun to ride along to see everything horrible going on, you know? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, I wanted to mention uh, The weekend, the singer-songwriter entertainer, uh, yes. is also <laughs> uh, in this film, and he's he's kind of, not a big part, but he, he plays a, a pivotal role for sure. And, it, and it's interesting because they're like, oh, what are you guys going on? We're going to go see The weekend tonight. And everyone's like, who's that? You know, because it's, it's kind of before this guy... Uh, blew up so it, it's really interesting how they use real world people and elements and they kind of r- write their story around these things so that they can use real life people and like news footage or footage of like uh like these games these nba games yeah and, and like i said there, there's there's such a feeling of setting in doing that it feels so genuine and i don't know how these guys managed to nail all this stuff down but they're turning into something if you haven't watched the safety brothers before there's something worth keeping an eye on they're doing something great I want to talk about themes. It's worth mentioning. Uh, obviously, gambling and, and going for the next big score is a big one. Letting it all ride. Uh, <laughs> taking your winnings and immediately turning it over into a bigger bet um, in the hopes of, I don't know, turning into something. Family is relevant. Religion is important in here. Uh, class warfare matters. Um, I, I'm not even sure where to jump in on all of that so what one of the things i want to talk about is how the film starts so it actually starts in out in some ethiopian diamond mine, uh where these two miners find this big uh opal this big gem which eventually gets shipped to adam sandler and becomes a big part of the the story as well because everyone's trying to get their hands on this uh this big opal that he thinks is worth millions um but the film starts in the this diamond mine and then the camera pans into the jewel itself. And then it kind of come on the other side, we come out and, and we meet Howard. Um, and it's almost like it's a insight into his life, into his craziness. And there's, um, at an auction, they mentioned, oh, the, the jewel is is mirrored, so you can see see through it, see all the brilliant colors, see into the universe, and that's kind of what we're getting. We're seeing into the universe, the crazy universe that is Howard Ratner. Yeah, uh, and there's there's definitely an element of like mysticism behind yeah. <laughs> that, right? It's it's a bit of a MacGuffin that this kind of this this uncut gem uh, that that kind of drives the movie forward. It's ultimately not all that important to the plot, and at the same time, it's so central. It's hard it's hard not to call the movie anything else. Um, I I enjoyed this kind of this weird misplaced power people have in it our character Howard Ratner played by Sandler and Kevin Garnett of course they both feel this something coming from it this energy uh, that, <laughs> that kind of builds up towards the end of the film um, and you can never really tell what that is uh, whether, whether it's it's genuine or or imagined I, I guess that's up to you to decide but I, I loved the way it's handled it's so it's so 
soft touch. You don't even see it for most of the film. That's why it's a pretty good MacGuffin. Um, it's just talked about. It's imagined, you know? That's what makes it so sharp. And, and I, I... I don't know. There's so much I liked about this movie. At the same time, God, it's such a stress fest, man. <laughs> and like I said, that's what I loved about it. I love that I was so stressed out and that it gave me like legitimate anxiety. And, you know, some people, they, they've hated it because of that. But I think if you're watching a movie and it's it's creating those feelings and it's doing its job. I do want to talk about the soundtrack. Uh, it's minor, but it's worth mentioning. It's this kind of electronic uh, track that just kind of comes in and out of the movie that I actually really enjoyed a lot. Maybe it's because I'm a sucker for electronic uh, music, but um, it fit. It, it, it's it's got usually high beats, uh, high, you know, high high beats per minute. It's very fast, uh, very tension, and it just slides in and out exactly when it needs to be there, um, especially in moments of montage when Howard is trying to juggle 10 phone calls and three people are at his door and every one of them wants money and, <laughs> and he doesn't have it. Um, man, it, it, it serves so well as, as just kind of the, the grease under the wheels for the tension in the film. And, and I wanted to mention as well this this element of kind of voyeurism in the movie. There's there's a handful of shots. New York City is very much alive uh, under the plot, all right? And, and there are constantly elements in motion that Adam Sandler cannot control uh, happening uh, that, that affect him, uh, whether that be somebody who says they're going to pay him and then doesn't, or somebody who pawns something he only wanted to loan out. Um, there's a couple scenes when he gets on an elevator with a bunch of strangers and he says, man, you wouldn't believe the day I'm having. And it's weird because there's this element of, of just yeah, a very lively city running under everything. It's a reminder that, that what's happening to him could be happening to anybody you see on the street. Um, it makes it feel more, more real, more alive in a way. And I really respected that. Mm-hmm. Any, any other thoughts on this one, Andy? I think I'm ready for recommendations, man. I'm, I'm ready to leave this one in the dust. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> Andy, would you recommend Uncut Gems? Uh, I would with with some with some warnings here that it is. I enjoyed it. I enjoyed the character study of Howard Ratner and kind of seeing the, this man who cannot overcome his worst nature. Um, but I thought it was a good story, really brilliantly written, good cast, good performances. It is. Re- incredibly anxiety inducing it is stressful to watch and then I, I can't remember the last movie i saw maybe even some of 1917 did this but not the entire time uh so it is stressful it will stress you out it's meant to do that it is not a typical adam sandler comedy like i don't know who got, had that in their mind but that some people definitely thought it was but i would definitely recommend it I worry my review makes it sound like I'm talking smack, and I'm really not. Uh, I had trouble enjoying this flick. I'm not sure I'm going to watch it again. At the same time, I think it's worth a second watch. Uh, I would recommend this. I would. It's a. It's almost a little art house in its presentation, but man, it is a ride. I, you're, you're absolutely right. Like I can't remember the last time I was just glued to the screen like I was for this flick. I didn't check my watch once. The only reason I think it might be too long is because, my God, my heart can only take so much, you know? <laughs> yeah. Um, but it, it is something. It's unique, and it's different, and it's a great performance by Sandler. Uh, it's a story, I think, worth hearing. Uh, I would recommend Uncut Gems. Yeah, and I, I, I'm I, going to be interested on Monday when the Oscar nominations come out and see, like, I wouldn't be surprised if he gets one. 
I don't think he would win, but I think he, I think his performance is good enough to be nominated. Man, yeah, it's right up at the end of the year, but I think screeners have already gone out, I'm sure, so it's it's worth considering. Um, there are some big contenders this year, though, so I don't know. Also, worth mentioning before we jump off Uncut Gems, seventh most F-bombs in film history in this movie. Uh, so that's worth mentioning. A lot of F-bombs, lots of cursing in this movie, and some violence. Uh, Andy, I think it's time to work, work into our se- next segment here. That's right. Uh, I think you're going to take the lead on this one. Uh, please take it away. We're going top 10 lists of the decade. So I'm going to be talking about uh, my top 10 list of films of the decade, but also a number of top 10 uh, films, not just the uh, the top ten. I'm also doing top ten superhero films, top ten horror, top ten quotes, um, top ten foreign films didn't quite get ten, top ten documentaries also not ten, and top ten animated uh, good, films. Good God, Andy! <laughs> so I started this list like three weeks ago. It's true, and, and I've been doing it for a while. That's uh, so. Let me start with. Uh, I'll just do the the top ten of the decade, and uh, this took quite a while. Go ahead. I, I was just, just going to remind people in case you forgot from the last half hour. I've seen none of these. You posted a link and I haven't opened it. I want to go in fresh here. So I, I, I can't wait to hear it. Okay. So <laughs> starting at number 10, Terrence Malick's The Tree of Life. Ah, Malick I, makes the top 10 <laughs> list. He do, you right. know, and I, do, I don't want it to because he's got stupid movies like From Song to Song um, and, and Night of Cups, which are so pretentious and self-indulgent. But The Tree of Life is a really brilliant philosophical film i can't ignore it as much as i w- wanted to for i think 2011 maybe 2010 i see uh, yeah, i saw that movie sophomore year of college and i wanted to hate it so much and i watched it and i was so angry that i loved it at the end of it so i can totally see why it's on this list uh number nine parasite uh from 2019 bong joon oh snap parasite definitely making the the, the top 10 uh, of the decade um followed next i have uh black klansman by uh oh man i can't blanking on spike jones spike lee spike lee black (laughs) landsman yeah um just an incredible portrayal of of racial issues this takes place in the 70s but it still resonates today the film ends this has been out for a while now so i can feel saying the film ends with footage from the charlotte uh riot uh, from a couple of years ago where uh, one woman did die when a white supremacist drove into a crowd. I had purposely avoided watching that footage because it's horrific and I had to see it then at, at this. Um, and it's it's a stark reminder that uh, these issues are still here and they're very real. Uh, still in- yeah, a bit, bit more of a film essay and I wish we had kind of reflected that in our review back when we covered it. But um, I've, I've rewatched it again since Black Klansman. You're right. It's It's a piece of work. Uh, coming in hot in number seven uh, in the same vein 12 Years of a Slave um, which is uh, filmed by Steve McQueen British director who uh, again incredible portrayal of of slavery in America very brutal very hard to watch Uh, this was added to several I think it was instantly added to like the um, Congress film registry and also is an as an educational piece of work, incredible film, very difficult to watch, difficult subject matter. Number six, coming in hot, Drive. 
the, oh, uh, the oh, Nicholas Winding Refn. Yeah, all right. I'll take Drive. Man, I have, and I have wanted to like his follow-up work, um, and I just haven't. Like, uh, Only God Forgives, and I can't remember the one he did after that. Uh, Neon Demon. Neon Demon I actually enjoyed. Um, but Drive is such a, a simple film, and it's so stylistic, and it's got great performance uh, from Ryan Gosling. One, he was kind of doing this thing for a while where all his characters just didn't talk. They just stood there stoically. He did like three films in a row that were like that. Uh, but Drive, one of my favorite films of the de- decade, absolutely. Number five, Django Unchained. Okay. Um, my favorite of the four Tarantino films or so that we got in, in the last decade. That's uh, very personal. I, I wouldn't have thought that was your favorite. His, his, I think his best, because we, we have Django Unchained. He also did uh, what Hateful Eight, Once Upon a Time. Bastards. Right. right. And, and Well, of the, of the last decade. So that makes the top. You know, I tried to put Scorsese on here to try to think if there was something. And, uh, you know, none of his work really s- stood out enough. To me. Silence didn't do it for you. That's a <laughs> oh gosh, silence. Um, Wolf of Wall Street was close. Number Oof, f- yeah. number four, Star Wars: The Force Awakens. Okay, <laughs> hold on a second. Yeah, this from the the Ryan Johnson fan uh, of of Episode Eight. So yeah, I mean Episode Eight is definitely my favorite, but S- The Force Awakens was a cultural milestone. It was a huge movement. It made t- over two billion dollars. Um, which is more than double than its predecessors. It was the resurgence reboot of Star Wars. And I think it's it's not just, not necessarily my favorite, but as much as uh, one of the most important films of the last decade. And will be it'll be interesting to see what Star Wars does in the 2020s. Um, coming in number three, Blade Runner 2049. Number three. How <laughs> dare you, sir? Movie's a masterpiece. No, I'm glad. If, if anything's going to take a top three spot, it should be that movie. God, I love that movie. Yeah, Denny Villeneuve's uh, incredible $150 million indie film uh, that totally bombed, but is an incredible piece of work. And it's it's a shame it didn't find, find an audience. Um, I had a couple of other. I also had a rival on here, but I, I limited myself to one director. I Like, I wasn't going to pick because um, I easily could have picked several of his. I've Number- got I've got two two films that I better you're two and one, and I, I don't know if I should <laughs> say them now or I guess I'll just wait. That's okay. Fine. Number two, Inception. Okay, I got one wrong. <laughs> <laughs> so um, Christopher Nolan's, and this is from way back in 2010. Uh, that movie was such an incredible thing when it came out. It, it was memed. It was parodied. Uh, I saw it three times in the theater. It was absolutely mind-blowing. It hasn't really kind of stood the test of time for some reason, uh, like as as much as some of his other things. But some of his other films were also on, on here initially. I, I did initially have like Dark Knight Rises, uh, Dunkirk, uh, Interstellar. But I had to just choose one, so Inception is definitely my favorite. And my top, my number one film of the decade Mad Max Fury Road. I knew it. I knew it was going to be Fury Road. <laughs> no, it's great. It's a really good movie. Um, yeah, what, what? definitely one of my, my favorites. Just an incredible action piece the, that is incredibly deep and has, you know, themes of uh, feminism, of inequality, of warmongering. Of it, There's so much in there, but it's it packs all that into what is essentially a chase. Uh, there, I, I remember seeing the trailer for Mad Max Fury Road, and I was like, oh, that kind of looks like the fast and the furious like it'll be whatever and it was one of the most amazing films of that year and of that decade and we got the force awakens and mad max in the same year which is uh, pretty incredible 
Mad Max really is an incredible piece of work. It's so well paced. It's action and then it slows down and then it's action and then it slows down. But throughout that whole thing, there's always this presiding feeling of something is coming. We have to keep running. Um, man, what a great pick. What a great list, Andy. I'm so impressed. Oh, thank you. Thank you. <laughs> I definitely, it took a I, while. <laughs> I knew your number two was going to be Nolan because I hadn't heard him yet. I, I thought it was going to be Dark Knight. Um, just because that, that, that would probably make my list. But mm. Well, I mean, Dark Knight Rise. You mean Dark Knight Rises? No, no, I mean Dark I mean, Knight. I mean Dark Knight is t- is two thousand eight. It's not the. Oh the, God, I guess you're right. Well, it wouldn't make my list then, would it? Yeah. yeah. Um, so I had to whittle that down from a list of like twenty five, but I I was able to to do it. It's uh, such a shame. Inception has not had the following. I guess because it's too complicated. You're right. Like why why didn't that make a bigger cultural impact? Like, I think part of it is is all also the it was pre meme generation. It was pre like. Twitter, like social media, wasn't near as big as it is now. I think it sure. would. I think Inception would be absolutely mind blowing still and be received differently and be a cultural thing. It's just, it was an incredible movie at the time, but it hasn't kind of stayed in the cultural mind um, the way a lot of other films have. That uh, was so, definitely an Inception meme for a hot minute. DiCaprio looking at Killian Murphy in the bar, yeah. like confused. Yeah. yeah. Uh, so some other top tens, and I'll blow through these uh, superhero films. Um, oh, the Ad- Avengers: Infinity War Saga, both Infinity War and Endgame. Uh, number two, The Dark Knight Rises. Number three, Logan. Number four, Man of Steel, which have which is two thirds of a really good movie. I always <laughs> say. Uh, number five, Joker. Number six, Guardians of the Galaxy. Number seven, Captain America: Civil War. Uh, number eight, Wonder Woman. Number nine, Black Panther. And number ten, Deadpool. What do you think of that I, list? I'm surprised to see Man of Steel above Joker. I'm surprised to see Captain America Civil War uh, so low. I thought that would be higher only because, man, that, that movie was so cool. It was the first time we saw the heroes going at it, you know? Um, yeah, like I said, I got Tom a soft... Tom Spider-Man is, comes up in that movie <laughs> for the first time. I have a soft spot for Man of Steel, that, which is not deserved, but that, that's why it's a little bit higher up. Uh, moving on to my top 10 horror, I'll, I'll count from 10 to 1 again. Uh, a Quiet Place... Um, it comes it, at n- wait. Was it number ten or number one? Number ten. Okay. Number ten it's coming. In number nine. It comes at night. Um, us and yeah. get followed by Get Out. The, the, the two Jordan <laughs> Peele. I probably should have split those up, but here we are. Yeah. Uh, number six, The Lighthouse, uh, which we love so much, uh, and The Witch. Uh, I put Robert <laughs> Robert Eggers together. Well deserved. Um, number four, Midsummer, uh, by Ari Aster, who's only his second film. Number three, The Babadook, uh, which was by Jennifer Kent. Okay. Um, number two, It Follows. Um, which I can't remember the director, but that never that was, saw that one. Yeah. Oh man, it's it's such an interesting film. It's an interesting premise, but also the film is really anachronistic. Where there's <laughs> there's um, it's it's like the Watchmen t- TV show we just watched, where there's some te- they have some technology, but they don't have others. Um, so it's really like they have internet, but they don't have cell phones. It's this kind of um, you know, like there, there's no real accurate time. <laughs> are setting that it's in i i read a very lowbrow review saying it was about stds and i decided to skip it there is there's a whole sexuality thing about it there's a whole sexuality it's it's brilliant though it's brilliant it's it's properly scary too yeah in a in a kind of different way number Uh, one hereditary Ooh, all right (laughs) ari aster's first big work easily the scariest thing i saw all decade like it scared me so bad and it's got some problems it's not a perfect film but man, 
it they did did it like oh man it was real disturbing it's true hereditary caught me so blindsided like i, n- I never saw that movie coming uh, a great list considering the big rise in horror this decade man bloomhouse pictures has really blown up and horror is a big element now in in cinema okay i'm just gonna do two two more of these categories otherwise we'll yeah. be here all night uh foreign <laughs> films true. foreign films i only have uh seven here uh coming to number, number seven cold war by pavel polakowski which we reviewed last year uh that's a great great movie force majeure uh, which i can't remember the director but uh, this is a story that takes place in sweden where a father a father and their family they go skiing and then there's uh, an avalanche and and in the course of this avalanche uh, the father just flees he just gets up and runs from his family leaves the wife and children behind and then they're all they're all right like that you know no one the avalanche doesn't kill or cover anyone but then the rest of the film it deals with his reaction to kind of abandoning his family in this wait, mo- wait, wait. moment that's, of that's being remade into a, a will ferrell uh, yes it's being remade into yeah. an american film because it's like a, a comedy Swiss. kind of drama yeah yeah it's it's, it. it's so good because that happens in the first act and then the rest of it is him having to deal with like well or his wife dealing like why did, and telling all their friends like hey guess how he reacted when this life or death situation happened to the family oh god um number five uh the handmaiden which was uh uh chan wook park so who famously made old boy mm-hmm. um parasite which is Bong Joon Ho, no, of course. Number four. Number four. Uh, I can't num- wait to hear the top three. Number three, uh, Burning, which is a, I, I can't remember the director. It's another Korean film, which I just saw on Netflix a couple months ago. Really incredible. Uh, actually, this must not be in complete order because I have Roma at number two, and, and then Snowpiercer at number one. <laughs> Bong okay. Joon Ho's Snowpiercer makes the list twice. Holy, oh gosh, he did. Yeah, I uh, probably should have put Snowpiercer somewhere else. But Roma was an incredible film. Snowpiercer was fine. Roma's your number one. Yeah, I, I think probably. Uh, I need to. Yeah. Well, actually, you know, I don't. I want to say I maybe didn't order this list, but anyways, that's that's the. <laughs> And uh, I'll do my my last top ten list is going to be uh, animated films. I was I hoping you did an animated list. Yeah. All right, let's hear it. Okay, so actually, okay, um, actually, we'll start with nine, uh, the Lego Movie. Okay. Um, big surprise there, even though it's a commercial. Number eight, Toy Story three. <laughs> all toys, all animated films are commercials because they all sell toys. But Fair Toy enough. Story three, good one. All right. Number seven, Wreck It Ralph. As a big gamer and fan of gaming, uh, I was uh, really charmed. Uh, yeah, by that, well, movie. that one's a big surprise. Yeah. Uh, six would be Frozen, the the Frozen series, essentially, uh, okay. w- one of the biggest uh, th- animated films of the decade. Uh, number five, Moana, probably my my favorite from uh, Disney Disney DreamWorks or the whatever non Pixar studio uh, does that. Yeah, dis- Disney animated films. Yeah, Disney. Right. Yeah. Uh, number, f- number four, Coco, uh, the Pixar film. Love uh, that. Starring, yeah, the, uh, with celebration of Mexican culture. Uh, Inside Out, which I've only seen once, but uh, man, I bawled oh, man. <laughs> several that, times. That movie cuts movie. so deep, man. Oh my God. Um, number two, uh, a Leica film, Kubo and the Two Strings. Yeah. Love Leica. And then number one, Spider-Man Into the Spider-Verse. Thank God. I wasn't on your superhero list and I was upset. <laughs> I was hoping to be animated. So good pick. Um, man, great list. Great list all around. Call me impressed. Yeah, really fun Really fun to do as well. And it took a lot of research. I had to go back and look at a lot of like top 50 lists from the decade and kind of pull it together. I love that you didn't have 10 films for top 10 foreign. So you went top seven instead of just rounding off to five. Oh. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. 
I can appreciate that you appreciate foreign films. Uh, you gonna put together any other lists? I'm curious. Uh, I think that's it for, for the decade, but uh, I think we definitely need to talk about what we're excited about in the year to come. It's true. Uh, are we doing that now or should we do that next episode? Do you have a uh, list? Hold no, on. I don't have a list. Okay. <laughs> I was like, wait, am I, am I crazy unprepared? All right, cool. <laughs> well, with that, oh my God, how long has this episode been? Okay, pretty long. Uh, we should get to our last review. Uh, we'll, we'll keep this one tight, I think. Uh, but I do have a lot to say about it. Andy's agreed to take the summary on this. Andy, please take it away. Little Women. So this is another adaptation of the Louisa May Alcott uh, classic novel uh, directed by Greta Gerwig, who, of course, did Lady Bird uh, from it was either last year or the year before. That's a great film starring uh, Saoirse Ronan and Timothy Chalamet, of course, because he's in everything, was in that. Uh, this adaptation uh, stars Saoirse Ronan, Emma Watson, Florence Pugh, and Eliza Scanlon as the little women, and they play Joe March, Meg March, Amy March, and Beth March. And Laura Dern also makes an, uh, plays the mother, uh, Marmy. And Timothy Chalamet, of course, plays Theodore Laurie Lawrence, uh, along with uh, some appearances by other uh, main actors. Uh, the story is a coming-of-age tale of these little women as they deal with uh, growing up and marriage and love, heartbreak, relationships, careers, um, bucking uh, you know societal trends while at the same time you know having to sur- survive. Um, it's it's a classic tale. I'm not familiar with uh, the original novel, and I haven't seen uh, the other versions. There's a, a version from the 90s, which is uh, kind of a classic version, I think, is well starring Winona Ryder, who I've been in love with for 30 years. Um, one day she'll realize it. <laughs> Anyways. She'll come around. She'll come around. Anyways, yeah. so that's that's uh, our setup. It, it takes place during the, the Civil War. Um, the father is off, uh, played by Bob Odenkirk, is off fighting in the war. And so uh, the, the girls are left to kind of raise themselves and, you know, develop, develop as young women. So that's our setup. Zach, what do you think? Similarly to, similarly to my review of uh, Uncut Gems, um, but on the opposite side of the coin, I'm split on how I feel about this film. Uh, structurally, I think it's a little confusing. Um the editing is a little all over the place. Uh, I the sound editing actually, believe it or not, is is surprisingly poor in this film. Um, but uh, this is a Greta Gerwig film. It, it it's very well presented. Our actors and actresses are very well directed. Performances are strong, and ultimately, I think it brings out the best parts of the novel, which I've never read. So I think it brings out the best parts of the novel. I don't actually know. And ultimately puts together a story that tugs at the heartstrings in a multiple of ways. Uh, I I had a lot of fun watching this movie. I actually really enjoyed it. Um, but it does have problems. So, uh, Andy, what did you think of Little Women? Um, I'm in agreement with you that the the telling of this story is a little problematic because it... it uh, Greta Gerwig decided to do this kind of flashback approach where she, you know, you start in the future and you flashback to the past and it does it a lot. You're going back and forth between time periods 
and it's a little difficult to follow if you're not familiar with the the source material. I was confused about what time period I was in several times. Like I didn't is I was like, is this a flashback or are we? In? And I couldn't tell partially because they don't look drastically different from time period to time period. Like they don't look significantly older or younger. So it's it can, it can be really difficult to tell. The only time I knew I was in the past is because Florence Pugh had these terrible bangs um, which is how i how i do i was like oh that's that's a young version uh, and it was it was the 1900s or whenever all she that. grows that, them out later that's fine she does grow them out it's um true. i i think that's been uh one of the down i think it's a big downfall of this film i think it's a big problem i think there are great things about this movie like the performances the setting costumes there are parts where uh you know the characters really start to develop and get into and i was getting into it and then but then it cuts and goes to another time period and i'm like well i was getting into the way you what you were doing so i i think uh like i said there's good and bad uh, i think the, the film has some big problems but i think it has some big triumphs so well. obviously the editing is something worth talking about but maybe not the first place to start but that's up to you where, where do you want to start this conversation um, why don't we start with uh, performances? Uh, right. So as we mentioned, uh, Saoirse Ronan was who was actually nominated for her performance as uh, Joe Josephine March, uh, the Golden Globe. Uh, she's kind of she's the leader or kind of the oldest sister, and she's uh, you know she, she's a strong independent woman who don't need no man, but maybe she does at the, at the at the same time. Uh, but she's very much uh, about. Um, kind of breaking b- boundaries and barriers in in the time period. Very difficult uh, for women to to do so. Um, Florence Pugh is really good. She's having such an incredible year um, between this Midsummer and Fighting with My Family. Uh, but but she also has has to give a very nuanced performance as a, a young woman, like teenage, and then also as she grows up into womanhood, has to make you know, more serious decisions. Um, I really liked her portrayal. Uh, Emma Watson is fine. She's just Emma Watson. A <laughs> uh, <laughs> little bit. Yeah. Same thing with Eliza Scanlon. Uh, I do think in like, you know, 10, 20 years, it'll be incredible to look back and see that these four, four or five women were all in a film together. Uh, Laura Dern, uh, excellent as, as the mother figure. And also uh, Meryl Streep is, plays uh, the aunt, I think. Uh, yeah, Aunt March, yes. uh, as as well, and she's kind of the the old cynical. You don't need love; you just need a good rich man to marry kind of uh, person. But she she's great in this film as well. I enjoyed the performances all around. I think some of them weren't as great as others. Uh, you're right. Emma Stone is just playing Emma Stone with an American accent, which isn't even that good. But that being said, I do, uh, Emma Stone, Emma Watson. Good lord. Uh, I'll tell you why I, 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 I mistook that if a little fun fact trivia about this, uh, Emma Stone was originally cast to play Emma Watson's role, uh, Meg. Oh. <laughs> and Emma, Emma Watson took it over after Emma Stone had to, had to go on a press tour for the favorite and couldn't do it. Um, another fun f- bit of trivia about them. Not that it matters. Emma, Emma Watson was originally supposed to be the lead in La La Land and Emma Stone took it over because oh, wow. Emma Watson was doing Beauty and the Beast. So the two of them have had some weird dance back and forth so excuse me if i mistake them but uh, emma watson plays emma watson in this movie uh with an american accent that's not even that strong but i like her and she's charming and meg is not by any means the central sister in fact she's kind of in the background uh, for most of this movie so i didn't mind that florence Pugh is a lot of fun as amy she's very childish when she needs to be and pretty mature when she has to be uh, bangs aside and also a charming flower <laughs> crown which was uh, a fantastic nod to mid- midsummer uh, intentional or not 
it was unintentional. But uh, Eliza Scanlon plays Beth. Um, I don't know a lot about her. I guess I'm interested to see what she does next. But she's also <laughs> sidelined a bit. Uh, so, so she's in. Uh, the, I first saw her in Sharp Optics, which is an HBO uh, miniseries. Uh, Sharp Optics was written by the same person who wrote uh, Gone Girl, uh, Jillian Flynn. Uh, she's incredible in that series, and that's where I know her from. So that's, uh, yeah, she's she, she's she's the real deal. Yeah, she feels a little underutilized in this one as the youngest March sister, uh, the youngest of the Little Women. She's got pigtails and kind of childish and quiet, and like uh, she she never really comes into her own. I don't think, which is maybe the point if you've seen Little Women. Um, Joe March, uh, played by Saoirse Ronan, is obviously Saoirse Ronan. Saoirse is obviously the standout. Uh, I, big, big props to Laura Dern as well, who I really enjoyed as their mother. Uh, Timothy Chalamet as Laurie was tremendous. Um, <laughs> of course. A surprise appearance by Bob Odenkirk, who I forgot was in this movie, and he shows up, and I, I literally laughed in my seat and, and didn't <laughs> I, say out loud. I thought it was, oh, Bob Odenkirk is in this movie now. Great. All I, could, all I could think is, like, someone's got to make this into a Better Call Saul meme. Yeah, and uh, Chris Cooper, and a surprisingly kind of kind of a lofty role uh, that I really enjoyed uh, him in. I, I like the performances all around. I thought everybody was strong. I, I thought the characters were well fleshed out. It's rare that I can watch a movie with kind of four main characters. You know, Joe, Mar- Joe March is our main, but it's called little women, not little woman woman. Um, I remembered, I remembered all their names, Meg, Amy, Beth, and Joe, not in that order, but like, it's worth mentioning that each one of these characters gets enough screen time that like they really come into their own. What frustrated me as a viewer was I would have liked to have seen more of each one. Each one of them could have their own movie for God's sake. And instead they're all kind of relegated to what feels like a bit of a montage. I'm not sure if that's how little women was written. That's how the nineties film went with Nona Ryder, but, um, so I liked them all. I just wish I'd seen more of them, I guess. Right. So, and this is what I heard from uh, a different pod, lesser podcast, which I won't mention. Um, Vanity Fair. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, lesser but, Vanity Fair podcast. Right? Yeah. yeah. Uh, so, so they mentioned that uh, that uh, basically Greta Gerwig is trying to put a lot in the from the book in this, and so because of that, the film has is kind of have has a lot crammed in there. Like, she does. She probably needed to cut out uh, some storylines or some events or or something to kind of. Um, but yeah, th- there's a lot in there. Which, which is why it kind of feels like a little bit rushed. Right. And that is not necessarily the fault of the film. If anything, it could have been longer. And at two hours, 15 minutes, that's saying a lot. Um, I would have watched more of this movie. But when it comes to feeling rushed, we probably should start to talk about the editing, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, the, the elephant in the editing room. <laughs> uh, can you kind of walk through what's what's frustrating about it, I guess? So we start, we essentially start at what I think is the end of the novel and we, then we, but then we flash back to the beginning and then we just keep doing that and it's, it becomes really difficult to follow. I, I, I do like that as a technique, you know, cause it's very postmodern to mess with the uh, chronology like that. But I just, I was, as a viewer, I was lost and it, what it reminded me, um, if you're really familiar with this already, like if you've seen the other three, uh, adaptations of Little Women, and if you've read the novel several times, if you know it all, you're probably going to really enjoy this beat because it's almost like remind me of Shakespeare, where when people always want to reinvent it, it's like, okay, we we've done Romeo and Juliet, let's do Romeo and Juliet in space, or it reminded me of uh, you know Coriolanus, which was a Shakespeare film from about four or five years ago, uh, 
where it was like, you know, people with guns and army fatigues and it was, but it was like Shakespeare, but with machine guns. And so it was a reinvention. That's what this kind of feels like. It feels like someone who really knows the property and is trying to reinvent it. And that's great if you know it, but if you don't, if you're like me, it, I was just lost a lot of the time. Yeah. Like, and the, the hops back and forth are certainly confusing at the beginning. I, I kind of came around on the end of them, but they've got some fundamental issues. One, the characters look no different. Their hair is a little different, but like there is seemingly no effort made to age them up or down for these back and forths. Uh, I mean, they act a bit more mature, right? In their acting, that's present, but like visually, there is no difference. Um, there is a different color scheme. That's worth mentioning. Uh, the present is very... Uh, blue and cold and the past is very warm and and kind of yellow golden Uh, Mm -hmm. um, and 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 that kind of helps out but i mean if you're not privy to that stuff if you're not looking for it you may not even notice um it's like when i said it's like when we said i should say solo was too dark and a lot of people who heard our review were like what are you talking about that movie looks fine um you may not notice that and and there's no there's no really establishment of what time things are happening other than the first time it hops you get a quick card of, of you know 1917 or 1915 or whatever it is um, other than that you just got to keep up and there's there's really no there's no rhythm to it and and that's a thing in editing that's that's something that most people don't notice it's one of the things I loved about Bong Joon Ho's Parasite so much is that he's got such a rhythm and this structurally doesn't have that. Towards the end, as things are building up and like the two timelines start to meet, right? As our as our past starts to meet our present, um, things start to match up a little bit more, and you get some duality that's charming and ultimately effective for an emotional climax in the film. But you really got to earn it, and, and and it's just not put together in a way that feels as cohesive as it should have. And I don't know what they could have done to straighten that out. You know, right? Like I said, I I. I needed a little bit more linear storytelling. Um, there's just, I, th- I think I could have gone with the flashbacks if there just weren't so many. That's what makes it really confusing. And like I said, the other thing is a, a scene will start to get going. Like there's a couple of really good exchanges between uh, Timothy Chalamet's Laurie and uh, Amy March, uh, Florence Pugh's character. And they, they, you know, they get into some really deep uh difficult conversations and then it'll it'll cut to something else and i was like man i really liked what was happening there but then we move on and that again it kind of kills the drama that you've created right and it kind of sets our characters up for an unsatisfying conclusion because one of your storylines that is set in the past you can look at what's happening in the future and see okay well i know where these characters are going to end up I know what's going to happen to this one and this one, this one, this one. And because they don't look all that different, you know, like they're not going to be all that different. Fundamentally, they're not that different in the future. I think the book is, yeah, like you said, more linear and there's nothing wrong with telling a story out of order. Um, but you gotta, you gotta bring your audience along. And that one's just a little tough to keep up. Mm-hmm. But I still enjoyed the stories for what they were. I still enjoyed the way our characters developed and the way they grew just the structure, the framework in which that happens is a little all over the place for me. Yeah, like this this definitely made me really interested in the property. Um, I don't have the patience for reading, but I, uh, 
I definitely want to see the other versions of this. I'd like to see the 90s version, and I think there's one before that. And I think more importantly, uh, it shows me what Greta Gerwig can do. Um, you know, those, like I said, those scenes that are good and that are really engaging. Um, when she's on, she's on, and it, it makes me excited for her next work. You know, it, like she's slowly going to become one of these people that whatever she does, I'm going to go see. And, you know, I'd love to see her get a big property, like get, get a Star Wars, get a Marvel film. And I, I would really love to see her do her, uh, do her stamp on a film like that. Yeah, me too. Uh, she's certainly not to her. There, there's, there's kind of a style emerging. I went and saw this movie at uh, Alamo Draft House, and like they do at Alamo Draft House, they kind of ran some interesting promotional material in front of the movie. And one of the things they ran was like things we love about Greta Gerwig. It's like a five minute little piece about kind of her previous films and kind of themes that are running throughout them. And it's really, it, it makes it appear very self-evident that she's got a style and a feel and that's, that's in this movie. And, and I think it's got the heart that she normally brings to a picture. Um, it's not, not put together quite the way you'd want, but uh, the settings are tremendous. The feeling of it is great. The costume design is on par. The house the our little women live in is homely and warm, and it feels encouraging and embracing. When they go out in the world and it's the future, it feels cold and it feels hard, you know. And it's it's not quite the way they they always wanted life to be. And that kind of ties into this running theme in the film of kind of penning your own story, right? Writing your own ticket, believing in yourself, and having the confidence to go forward in the future. Um, that just feels weighed down a little bit by us knowing what the future is going to be because we just cut away from it and we're about to cut back to it. But still good, still captivating. For a period piece that could have been very dry and boring, it's modernized in a way that feels engaging. Uh, even to somebody the movie's not made for, which is me, uh, a 27-year-old <laughs> dude uh, sitting sitting there watching the movie. Um, I still enjoyed it, though. Yeah, it. it um, I'm not a fan of period uh, dramas by any means uh, for a number of reasons, um, but I, I was I was really engaged by this and I was taken in by the stories and like I said, I'd l- like to see other <clears throat> other versions of it. I actually just quickly looked it up on IMDb. There's like 15 versions of this, both for like TV and film. Really? Okay. Well, that's that's no surprise, I guess. <sighs> well, any other thoughts on this one before we move on? I think I'm ready. All right. Andy, would you recommend Little Women? Uh, Yes, with some caveats. There are really great performances, and it's really incredible directing and storytelling um, when it takes its time. Like I said, the editing is a big problem for me. If you're familiar with the property, I I think you're going to really enjoy it, and I think you're going to enjoy kind of a fresh take on it. If you're not, you might be a little bit lost. So it might be worth seeing uh, the 1994 uh, version or or reading the novel before uh, you walk into it. Yeah, I I would recommend it. Honestly, I know I talk about how it was confusing. It's hard to keep up with. I, th- I think it is, um, but that doesn't make it a bad movie. I think the story ultimately here is important. I think Andy might be right. You might find yourself more interested in the original work uh, than actually watching this one, but the performances are good. The settings are captivating. The direction is strong. The editing hurts, but ultimately, like, Little Women is, is, is a really good flick, and like I said, talks in the heartstrings. It's emotional. Um, I enjoyed it a lot. I think you'll enjoy it too. Yeah. So <laughs> listen, that's, listen. yeah. Sorry. Listen to this uh, casting of the, this is the 1994 uh, version. Uh, Winona Ryder as Joe March. Lover. Uh, uh, Trini Alvarado as Meg March. I don't know who that is. Mm-hmm. Kirsten Dunst as younger Amy March. Ooh, Kirsten Dunst. Uh, Claire Danes as, as Beth. Claire Danes. Okay. Christian Bale as Laurie. Yes. <laughs> I love it. The Batman. 
Batman. Um, and then Susan Sarandon as uh, Mrs. March. All right. Susan Sarandon. Like, that's a pretty wholesome 90s cast, though, for what it's worth. Totally. Like, I mean, these are all still people working, <laughs> you know, yeah. people. Winona Ryder, young Kirsten Dunst, hot off, hot off Jumanji. Uh, that's a good time. I'm sure Christian Bale, hot off Newsies. Uh, so that's <laughs> yeah. a good time. Both their Disney productions. Susan Sarandon. Like, not so bad. I'll take that. Little Claire Danes in the mix. It's probably probably a fun watch. Um, definitely retro nowadays, but I don't know. I, I'm not, I don't know how a 90s period piece ages. You know what I mean? What are you getting into there? Yeah. <laughs> There's going to be a whole lot going on. Anyway, that's our review of Little Women. That's our review of, of Uncut Gems. That's Andy's review of the last decade, summed up into a few handy lists. <laughs> that's, that's right. Uh, next week, we're going to be taking a look at Underwater, the T.J. Miller film. Uh, <laughs> horror, it's a horror, horror deep sea. There's some yes. sort of monster. Um, what's your name from Twilight's in it? Man, I can't Kirsten Dunst is the lead, I think. Uh, we'll be honest, it's a tough week at the movies. Uh, our decisions between this and Just Mercy, and we thought, well, which one looks a little bit more fun to watch? Just Mercy, I'm sure, is encouraging and hopeful and inspiring, but ultimately... It just looks like a sad two hours, and it was like, well, at least underwater we'll have a little fun. Uh, so we're going to go see what that's about. We're also going to watch American Animals on HBO. I forgot what this movie was. Andy reminded me. Andy, please remind the people. What's American Animals? Uh, so this is a, a heist film uh, that came out a couple of years ago. Um, really wanted to see it. We couldn't find a, a screening of it, but it's it's based on a true story of a, a real high school, but it's not a bank heist. It's these people trying to, uh, these like high school kids trying to steal a, a rare book or, or something from a library, but everything kind of goes wrong as happens with most heists. And of course, the, the wide release of 1917 is this week. So uh, please check out our previous episode uh, to listen to the review and uh, that check that out this weekend. Yeah, and, and hear it on our top 10 list. <laughs> and it won a Golden Globe, so you might know. Maybe it's worth going to see 1917. That's what we're getting at. Um, American Animals, before we get away from it, also stars Evan Peters and Barry uh, Cohen. I don't, I don't know. So Keo. His name. Keo. Keo. Uh, I'm excited to see that movie. I think, I think it's going to be cool. Um, so we'll see what it's about. Anyway, uh, from all of us at Off Script, thanks for listening. The home of Bold Cinema. We're excited to get into the next decade. Maybe I'll put together a top 10 list of my own for next week. We'll see. Uh, thanks for listening. Um, oh, social media. I got to tell people where they can find us. Of course, <laughs> we're on all the social media. We, we do all of it. That's, that's the secret. We're on Facebook, we're on Instagram, Twitter, of course, we're on YouTube and, uh, throw us a like if you can swing it. Maybe even a subscription if you have the means, if you haven't already and maybe tell a friend, huh? How about that? How about you recommend a cool podcast for somebody to listen to this week? That'd be neat. That'd be keen. That's, that's right. What I think. Yeah. That's right. I've already pressured several people this week into subscribing. I went and saw uh, uh, Uncut Gems with my buddy last night, and I, I, he said, "What do you think?" And I said, "Tune into Oscript Tuesday <laughs> <laughs> for my official review." Shameless. Um, from all of us at Offscript, the home of Bold Cinema. I'm Zach Lewis, and I'm Dr. Draper. Thanks for listening.